please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Tonight we'll look at the entire chapter. You'll find it, I'm sure, on the back page of your bulletin and on your screens if you're watching from home. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles. As soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. At that time Solomon held a feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I've given you I will, and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this, at this house, which was exalted 
Everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this disaster on them. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, what a joy it is to read from the Old Testament because we know that we are not butting in on somebody else's story. But we are your people of old. We have been grafted into Israel. We are the people of your covenant in your son. And this is a message written in part for us. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we would become wise, that when you speak, we will act in faith, being faithful to you all by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the Bible, God reveals himself both through word and deed. For instance, the first five books of the Bible were written to record something that God had done. He had acted and his word spoke. That event was, of course, the exodus of Israel in the time of Moses. And the result was the five books of the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible. And this pattern continues all the way through Scripture. What what is the Bible? The Bible is the record of God's mighty deeds. He has acted and then he has spoken. There is a word deed correlation. God brought his people into the promised land. He provided David's throne. He judged them with a Babylonian exile. He restored the penitent believers to their land. Ultimately, he sent his son to atone for our sin and establish his church. Each of these deeds is recorded in God's word and then explained what its meaning is to us. Now, there's another way to think about the word-deed correlation, and it's this, that when God speaks to us, we are to respond in deeds. His word is to require and, and produce our deeds. And an example of this is seen in Second Chronicles 7, when God responded to Solomon's prayer by revealing himself in the fire and glory at the temple. This prompted a response from God's people. It was a right response. Verse 3, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. Now the account of what happened when Solomon dedicated the temple, this chapter actually provides the primary theological grid for Second Chronicles. And the question was whether the Lord would be with Israel in the days to come as he'd been with Solomon and before him with his father David. And God answers that he will show grace to his people even though they sin. And the symbol of that promise would be the temple. Now this message speaks not only to ancient Israel but to everyone who reads the Bible today. Martin Selman writes that it offers hope to any who call on the name of the Lord even if they have incurred God's wrath. Because because God's desire is to be reconciled to his people. And yet 2 Chronicles 7 also sets forth the requirement of repentance and faith. In perhaps the best known verse from the entire book of 2 Chronicles, the theology of the entire book is laid bare. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways that I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal their land, verse 14. Well, Second Chronicles 7 unfolds in three sections, each of which involves God's 
God speaking and his people responding, his word and our deeds. The opening section begins with God confirming his approval of Solomon's temple and the prayer that he had offered in the previous chapter. It came this way, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then in response to God's revelation in the fire and the glory, the people responded with one of the most significant acts that we can ever do. Let's never underestimate the importance of what they did and what we do. They bowed down before him and they worshiped him with great joy. What a mighty deed that is. Now, chapter 6 recorded Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple. And he prayed, you remember, for God to hear the people when they prayed and to forgive them of their sins. And God's answer came in this dramatic form. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices were offered to atone from sin, and so the fire coming down from heaven and consuming the burnt offerings showed that God had accepted them. It also showed that what Solomon had done in this consecration was in continuity with all that had been done previously in God's covenant of grace because the same phenomenon had occurred earlier. During the Exodus, Moses and Aaron, with sacrifices, they had consecrated the altar of the tabernacle and fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. Likewise, when David in 1 Chronicles 21 had, uh, had offered a sacrifice to assuage God's wrath at the very place where the temple was then built, God answered with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering, 1 Chronicles 21:26. And so by repeating this act as Solomon's temple was consecrated, showed that Israel would receive that same grace that was shown to Moses and Aaron and to David. It would continue now to his covenant people. Now interestingly, a similar experience took place after God's son offered the true sacrifice of atonement on the cross. God showed, he symbolized that he had accepted that offering once for all in the event of Pentecost. And we little remember what happened in Acts 2, verses 3 to 4, that divided tongues of fire descended on the gathered disciples in that upper room, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the fire of the temple appeared after Solomon had prayed, but the Holy Spirit resulted when Jesus took his final atonement, the full atonement, his finished work, and he presented it in the true temple of heaven, and he appealed in his blood for our atonement. God sent the true fire of his Holy Spirit. Today, whenever a sinner believes, it is not visible fire from heaven that consumes a sacrifice and confirms God's acceptance. It is the burning fire of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Whenever a believer has looked in faith to Jesus and received the fire of God's Holy Spirit, the result is that God begins revealing to that believer his glory. You've had that experience. You're converted to faith in Jesus. You, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and suddenly the Bible comes alive and you see his glory. That's what happened at the temple. 
When the fire had licked up the burnt offerings, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now, most likely this glory had remained from its earlier appearance. It's back in chapter five, but it was the same event when the ark was brought up to the temple. It's mentioned again because of its astonishing confirmation of God's presence. On this occasion, the ministry of the priest was not really needed. God was saying, no, thank you. I don't need your help this time because he was visibly present in the ministry of his grace. Now, on all the occasions, I mentioned the previous examples when God's fire and glory appeared to his people, uh, their response was the same on each occasion. We see it in verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped. You see, here is our great deed in response to the revelation of God's glory in his word. You think of how when Jesus uh, revealed himself to the Emmaus Road disciples on the day of his resurrection, he, he did so, of course, with the exposition of scripture. And you remember what they said afterwards. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures? Well, today, when the word of God is preached, the same thing should happen among us. And our response should be to yield ourselves in worship like that of the Israelites gathered at the temple. They physically bowed, expressing their awe at the revelation of God's glory. Our hearts should be bowed down in reverence before the Lord. And in their worship, they confirmed their fidelity and devotion to him. Verse 3 says, they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And these words repeated in so many psalms renders the heart of Christian devotion. And Matthew Henry writes, this is a song that never goes out of season. And our hearts and tongues should never be out of tune in, in order to sing it. Well, God had appeared in the fire of glory and then the people worshipped and Solomon proceeded in verses 4 and 5 to consecrate the altar. The king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen. Now, those are large animals. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. Now, Scholars doubt the accuracy of these numbers, and the calculation is made, I think the numbers work out this way, that over the week that followed, if these numbers are true, it would require 20 sacrifices every minute, 24 hours a day. And so the standard scholarly answer is, well, these weren't the real numbers, it's just hyperbole. I wonder, you think about the remarkable organizational skills Solomon had shown in all the preparations and the building of the temple itself. That was a remarkable achievement. You think of the zeal he had. I think we should not underestimate what might have been done. Verse 7 tells us that he had the entire middle court consecrated for the offerings. They wouldn't fit on the altar. We're going to offer this many sacrifices. They don't fit on the altar. So he consecrated the whole court because the bronze altar could not, he'd made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. I think we should take these numbers seriously. And the sacrifices encompassed every aim of worship, the burnt offerings for the atonement of sin, the grain offerings as a dedication to the Lord, the fat offerings as a symbol of peace and fellowship with God. 
Well, while these sacrifices were being given, we read of the priests. The priests stood at their posts, and the Levites employed the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord, verse 6. So here we have both Solomon the king and the Levites, along with the priests, setting an example of zeal for worship that had the effect of inspiring the people to follow. That's how it should be among church leaders today. It should be principally the, the pastors and the elders and the deacons and, and then everybody else with esteem in the church. They should be the, one with the ones with the highest zeal for worship, inspiring the whole congregation to long to be together. Like the people gathered before the temple, the revelation of God's favor through the gospel should enlarge our hearts with a spirit of adoration. We should long to worship him. Well, doubtless, every one of us, as we read this account, we would be thrilled to actually have been present on that great day when Solomon dedicated the temple. Nonetheless, as we sing today, and and I would argue that the use of instruments here is in fact a relevant example for us doing the same, as we sing in the name of Jesus, surely we can have no less a fervor of thanks and praise. Well, the chronicler relates that this worship launched a special festival that lasted a whole week, followed immediately by the annual Feast of Tabernacles, after which the people finally were dismissed on the 23rd day of the seventh month. That's 15 days of ceaseless worship. And and he notes that during this time, Solomon worshipped and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Lego Hamath to the brook of Egypt, verse 8. Now, what are those names? Well, they mark the far north of the nation on the Euphrates River and the far south of the nation on the border of Egypt. These are the ideal dimensions of Israel once promised to Abraham when God gave the covenant to him. And now that had been literally fulfilled in Solomon's day. This was Israel actually achieving those massive boundaries. And so the king and the people dedicated the house of the Lord, verse 5, before departing for their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people, verse 10. A.W. Tozer remarked that there are delights that the heart may enjoy in the awesome presence of God that cannot find expression in language. They belong to the unutterable element of Christian experience. That's right. And our hearts are made glad by the revelation of God's word, the word that assures us that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. You see, the blessing that they're talking about, the prosperity they're speaking about, is the grace of God that comes through his son The fulfillment of God's promise to David that he would have a son and there would be a temple. To have a king like Solomon in a temple where God would visit his people in grace like this, that was prosperity indeed. And it all pointed forward to Jesus, that greater son of the house of David who reigns in the true temple of his church by the glory of his Holy Spirit. What prosperity to make us glad. There could be no greater cause for worship than the gift that was typified in the day of Solomon. God would dwell among his people in grace through the blood that was shed by his son. The Israelites of Solomon's day kept the feast for 15 days. So great was their delight in God's blessing. Andrew Stewart comments the Israelites did not find worship a burden. 
They delighted to worship God because they had an appreciation of what God had done for them. They were willing to go the extra mile, or in this case, the extra week. What a rebuke to Christians who find it too much of a burden to attend an evening service or a midweek Bible study or a prayer meeting. Well, this combination of word and deed that characterized the dedication service continues in the vision that then occurs afterwards. And here, God's word promises salvation, and the deed that we give in response is prayer, prayers of repentance and faith. Look at verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the night. Now, many scholars argue that this vision actually occurred some 13 years after the temple was dedicated. And there's a reason for this in verse 11, because verse 11 says that Solomon had finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. The king's house is Solomon's own palace, and 1 Kings 7.1 tells us that that took another 13 years to build. And so the logic is, well, it says he built the temple, he built his own house, then God appeared to him. I don't think that's the most likely reading, however. I think the chronicler has summed things up, and he's remarking on Solomon's whole achievement. He often summarizes longer accounts from 1 Kings. But clearly, he is locating in this chapter together the dedication of the temple and the vision that occurred, I would argue, that very night. Now, the purpose of God's vision was to confirm to Solomon the answer to the prayer that Solomon had prayed in chapter 6. In the same way that the fire came down from heaven and confirmed the building of the temple and the sacrifices there, so this vision confirms his prayer. Look at verse 15, and here is God's answer. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now that answer repeats virtually word by word the prayer that Solomon had given in chapter 6 for God to do that, for his eyes to be open, his ears attentive, that he would hear the prayers offered at the temple. And so henceforth the temple would be blessed by God both as a place for the offering of sacrifices and of prayers. By the way, that's going to be played out. That principle is going to be seen in the successive generations of Second Chronicles. I have to say, I'm looking forward to us going together through the successive kings, and many of them are going to live this out, and the promises are going to be fulfilled. In response to this word from God, the people would pray in their time of need, and when they did, God would be faithful to answer. Now, Christians have an even greater invitation to prayer since that great and final sacrifice has been offered by our Savior. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, presents the New Testament fulfillment of what God said here to Solomon. Writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the Lord further gave his amen to Solomon's prayer in verse 16. He says, For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. That's a remarkable statement, actually quite a rare statement in the Old Testament. God says he'd chosen Jerusalem as the place that was bear his name, and that choosing speaks of God's sovereign grace in his covenant. 
And God had consecrated the temple that my name may be there forever, meaning that he would reveal himself to the world through the blessings of his grace at this place. Well, how true that would be when Jesus would come to that very place and die on the cross for our sins. For God's eyes to be upon his temple means he would be attentive to the needs of his people. He would be vigilant for their protection. How blessed to us are those words of Psalm 121. How many times have I said to one of our beloved people lying on a sickbed, the great promise of God, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is a a vigilant guardian God. And he is all the time watching to bless and protect his people. Then he speaks of his heart. His heart would be there for all times. It shows the compassion of God to his people in need. Now the connection between the Lord and his temple would mean the world to the original readers of Chronicles. One of the interesting things we've often commented on in Chronicles is we're we're, we're watching what's happening at one point of time uh, in the 10th century BC when Solomon was dedicating the temple, but we're reading a document that's recording those events many years later to another generation that is coming back from the Babylonian exile. And they're coming back to a restored Jerusalem where the temple, I, I think the timing of Chronicles probably indicates the temple had been remade. And so what these promises meant the world to them. They were going back to Jerusalem. They had come back probably. They were there. The temple was present. They were going to reclaim this infinitely valuable covenant legacy. And yet ultimately all this was preparing for Jesus Christ. His coming represented the true dwelling of God with man. And John says in John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, all that the temple meant, all that the Lord says here about the temple, my eye will be upon it, my heart will be there, I've chosen it, my, my name is consecrated there. All of that is true of the church and of the people who come to Jesus in faith. Peter extols us, you are a chosen race. See the same language? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then to this end, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, for all the wonder of those statements, the very heart of God's message, and many have argued, many scholars I think rightly argue, it's the very heart of the theology of the book of Chronicles. In in fact, it's the chronicler's summary of the entire message of the Old Testament and then of the Bible. It's found in this famous verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. God promised Solomon, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now Solomon's prayer in chapter 6 anticipated there'd be a need for forgiveness. God says the same thing here. There's going to be a time when the people turn to sin. They're going to go into exile. They're going to suffer under God's discipline. And here the Lord offers, having noted the same thing, that he would hear them when they pray, when they repent, he would restore them. Here is summarized the biblical message to a lost world. 
that those who call on the Lord through Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins and they will be healed of sin's effects. They will be restored to God's rich presence and blessing forever. Now notice the if-then combination in Chronicles 7.14. The if consists of a penitent prayer of faith. The four elements are included. Humble, pray, seek, and turn. To approach God humbly is to confess both his greatness and our own unworthiness in sin. David Boda comments that humility is the essential starting point for all repentance. And then he says pray, and to pray is a shameless acknowledgement of sin, and it's a plea to God for his mercy. To seek his face is to appeal for God's favor, for justification through faith in the atoning blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. That's what it means to seek his face. And then finally, to turn from their wicked ways means to yield ourselves in surrender to God, renouncing all former loyalty to sin. Now these four steps should not be seen as four different things you do. It's all one unified whole, the biblical term for which is repentance. It's repentance. And repentance, you know, involves more than feeling bad about your sins or even more so feeling bad about getting caught for your sins and having to suffer for your sins. No, biblical repentance is this. It's coming to God with contrite hearts but also in a renewed hope in his grace with a true resolve to serve him in faith. Leslie Allen writes, the prayer had to be accompanied by a resolve to start again with God and leave the bad old lifestyle behind. Now God's mercy is offered in this way not only to ancient Israel, but to all the world in his son and That's why Jesus, when he was resurrected, he commanded that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Luke 24, 47. That's Luke's version of the Great Commission. And God's offer challenges us, its hearers today, calling for prayers of repentance and faith. Let me ask you, are you willing to confess yourself a sinner, to humble yourself before God? Do you, uh, do you desire for God to change your life? Are you ready to give up the ways of sin? You see, if we are willing, we can know that God's grace, in fact, not only will God's grace respond to us if we are willing in that way, God's grace already has been working in us. The very prayer of which God speaks to Solomon, a humble prayer, praying and seeking in a repentant spirit, that is proof that God is already visited us with his grace in order that he would save. That's the if of this offer, but with it comes God's then of a comprehensive vision of salvation. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 4. Now God's forgiveness of sins was symbolized by the the sacrifices offered at the temple, pointing forward to the true atonement that would be made on the cross of Christ. And to heal their land speaks of a comprehensive restoration to the blessings offered to the people of God's grace. We saw in Solomon in the previous chapter that when they sinned, the land would suffer drought. 
and the land would be wasted away. Well, now it would be refreshed. That's the imagery. The land would be trampled under the boots of invaders. The walls would be knocked down. The temple itself would be, re, would be torn, torn down. But all of this would be restored if we turn to the Lord in penitent faith. Leslie Allen comments, a frowning providence would be replaced by the smile of God's favor. It would bring new growth where before there had been decay. Oh, what a blessing that is. Don't you long in places of decay. Oh, Lord, give new growth. He says, I will heal your land. And God heals people. God heals families. Yes, he heals nations with a restoration to godly love, joy, peace, true righteousness. Marriages are healed with a renewed intimacy when a man and woman confess their sins and humble themselves and they they, they confess what is the truth. Lord, our sin has brought us to this. But we commit ourselves to you. We believe your promise. We will seek your faith. We will follow your ways. He heals their marriage. That kind of thing happens. Whole nations can experience a a revitalization of life when God's rule is embraced in gospel faith, when the darkness of sin is replaced by the light of God's word. How we should long for that in our time. Now, it's often observed that the promise of verse 14 is not given to secular nations, But God speaks of my people who are called by my name. That is Old Testament Israel. And yet Christians have rightly taken this offer as an incentive to the prayers of Christians and the church for the restoring of any sinful land in which they live. Let me give you an example of this. The 1858 prayer revival that revitalized faith in the United States at a time of real spiritual drought. It began in 1857 when Jeremiah Lamphere decided that he, he was going to post an ad for a prayer meeting. Come join me in prayer at the uh, upper room of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York City. And he was disappointed when the time came because you're, you're not going to be surprised by this if you've ever asked for a prayer meeting. The meeting started and he was the only one there. But by the time the hour was over, there were six people who'd gathered, and they were following this verse. They were pleading for their land, humbling themselves, seeking the Lord's face and the blood of Jesus. They were praying for their land. Six people came. The next week, more came. It began to grow. Week by week, it it continued growing. Before long, the stock market crashed, and there was a new awareness for God that led to more people coming. And within six months, this is all God's sovereign blessing, within six months, that prayer initiative had more than 10,000 people praying in New York City, and soon thousands more were praying in Chicago, Louisville, St. Louis, Cleveland. Then the newspapers picked it up. They would actually give positive press back then to this kind of thing. And and it spread further throughout America with the result that thousands believed were forgiven and received the Lord's healing grace. Do we believe that can happen today? I think we should not doubt if my people, we are his people, we are called by his name, we're to pray, yes, for the church, of course. Primarily this applies to the church and its spiritual blessings, but we should pray for revival in our land. Now when the chronicler recorded the Lord's offer of prayer for salvation, you think again of the original readers, the people who actually were receiving this account from the chronicler, they looked back on an even greater redemption 
I refer to the return of the exiles from Babylon back to the promised land. We don't often think of that. I mentioned the Bible records, the great redemptive deeds of God in history. One of them's the Babylonian captivity. If you don't know what the Babylonian captivity is, the Old Testament is not going to make a lot of sense. But then another great thing that God did in history was he, with a mighty axe, in response to this kind of prayer, the very prayer he told Solomon he would bless, he restored the people miraculously from their captivity in Babylon. The key prayer was offered by the prophet Daniel. He knew from the prophet Jeremiah, he was reading his Bible, how helpful that is. He, he knew that it was ordained for 70 years. He did a quick calculation. 70 years had come. And he offered the prayer that had been prescribed for that very thing in Leviticus chapter 9. No doubt he looked back to this dedication of the temple in the time of Solomon. And he prayed in just the way that God told Solomon that he should be prayed to. And God answered in a way that shows us that he is willing literally to move heaven and earth to save his people. Do we not realize that? We're living in scary times, aren't we? Scary to us. Other Christians have been living with this for long. Our brothers and sisters in China and the Middle East in Africa have long been facing the kind of things we fear for the church in America. We, We might come into times that threaten us in a way we haven't before. God is willing literally to move heaven and earth. Here's the short version of what he did in in this event they look back to. You remember in our reading of, of Isaiah in the morning services, we got to Isaiah 45 and the prophet Isaiah a couple hundred years in advance, had named a person, my servant Cyrus, Isaiah 45, 1. Who's Cyrus? Well, he is the Medo-Persian leader who swooped down and destroyed with his sudden attack the Babylonian Empire. You're going, that's a pretty big world event for God to orchestrate just to save his people. Well, yes, it is. But he's willing to literally up 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 in history to overthrow empires the babylonian empire was destroyed the medo persians came in and then we learn in ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 that marvelously that cyrus just as prophesied by name by the prophet isaiah ordered that the people of the jews would be restored to jerusalem he even gave the money and the provisions for the temple to be rebuilt and so in 520 bc zechariah and zerubbabel the prince and that wonderful group came back to jerusalem a couple of generations later nehemiah was the cupbearer of another persian king king artaxerxes and he was burdened in his soul about the dilapidated state of the walls and the gates of jerusalem you read about that in nehemiah chapters one and two and he prayed this way he humbled himself before the lord he pleaded with him he sought his face he 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 committed himself in a repentant faith and God caused that Persian monarch to notice that his cupbearer was upset. He asked him about it. Nehemiah was bold to tell him that he was downcast because of the state, not to to Artaxerxes. It's this little provincial city of no political significance. No, but in the power of God, he's moved. And he tells Nehemiah, you're going to go there. Here's the provisions. You're going to be the one to build the walls of Jerusalem. My friends, if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will seek his face if we will repent god will move heaven and earth he will save his church he will empower his gospel 
Well, God revealed himself in fire and glory. The people responded with heartfelt worship. But then he gave his word to Solomon, and the, the deed there was the penitent prayer of which we heard. The final word-deed combination of this chapter is in the last few verses. It starts in, in, uh, in verse 17 and 18. Solomon had prayed in the previous chapter that God would remember the royal house of David, that God would continue to allow successors on the throne. And the Lord answers, as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, that I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father. You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. And so God promises an unending line of this royal house. The deed to that word is that they were to walk before him in obedient faith. Now, the wording of this promise is interesting in that it does not guarantee that Israel will also always have a king actually sitting on that throne. The original readers knew that was not the case. They're living after the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the exile. But what it promises is that there would always be this king from the line of David and he would be available The chronicler knew what was going to happen. It's outlined in verses 19 and 20. Here's the warning. If you turn aside and forsake my statutes and commandments that I've set before you, if you go and serve other gods and worship them, I will pluck you from my land I've given you. This house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword among the nations. That's exactly what happened. In a very dramatic scene in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah warned right before the end what was going to happen. He preached his famous temple sermon, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah was saying the temple is no good if you're worshiping idols. The temple itself doesn't do anything for you unless you're walking before the Lord in true faith. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and then I will let you dwell in this place. You see, God had warned Solomon at the very dedication of the temple that it, the building, was not a substitute for sincere and obedient faith. And he says here, when the people turn from the Lord, when, when they use the temple as a source of false confirmation, God would remove it. And he would declare the truth of his wrath on sin. This is how the chapter ends. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished. They will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he brought this disaster on them. You know, Jesus spoke very similar in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to the churches of Revelation. He rebuked the church at Ephesus that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And he warned, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, the message to Solomon and to us is that God's mercy is not a pretext to worldliness and sin, but rather to deeds of godliness and faith. The message then, the message now, is that the true grace of God produces not only forgiveness, but also perseverance in faith and obedience. Here's how Paul put it. 
God has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Well, the end of this chapter shows it's more than possible for Christians, for churches, yes, whole nations, to make a shipwreck of their faith. And they do it by turning their backs upon the God, the God who came with fire and glory to Solomon's temple. The good news, here's the good news, is that he remains the same. As Israel sang, his steadfast love endures forever. You see, there is an unconditional promise that was made. We have the if and the then. And the if is is the problem we have because we can't keep the if. But the unconditional part had to do with the son, the royal son from the house of David and Solomon. There would be always this Savior, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ for those who come in repentance and faith. God's promise stands sure if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will seek his face, if we will turn from our wicked ways. That grace revealed at Solomon's temple will be available to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Have you turned from God's ways? Have you suffered the inevitable consequences because his word has not resulted in your deeds of faith and prayer and godliness? Well, If that's true, turn anew in repentance to the God who promised in verse 14, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will hear their land. Paul summarizes the meaning of God's message, offering full confidence that faith in Christ is the one thing that will never let us down. Paul put it this way, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Father in heaven, we thank you for the soaring grace that is seen in this passage, but also the sober reality that You call for us to be a humble, penitent people. You cause us to walk before you in faith. Lord, you know that we're sinners. You know we are always going to stumble and fall, but you call us to Christ. And Father, cause us to realize these promises are valid for us, that if we will merely come to you humbly, calling upon you in the blood of your Son, you will be that Savior who will never let us down. Oh, Father, would you hear our plea? Would you forgive us our sins? Would you heal our land? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.